Welcome to The Launch, the podcast sponsored by Tandem Launch, Canada's premier incubator. We'll talk about tech, startups, entrepreneurship, fundraising, and everything in between. If you have a research background in tech and always wanted to build your own startup, then check out our website, tandemlaunch.com, to see what we're all about. Now on with the show. Hey, welcome everyone to another episode of the Launch Podcast sponsored by Tenem Launch. I'm your host, Bobby Podochka, and today joining me is Scott Loon, a partner of Panache Ventures. So thanks for being here, Scott. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so let's start off with the normal introduction hoo-ha, but like, like me, you've kind of had a bit of a windy road, uh, trying to do a few different things, uh, to get to where you are today. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, it's a, I feel like it's a common, uh, a common thing in, in, in both VC and startups that you have people with pretty eclectic backgrounds to try to try a bunch of stuff, never quite felt you know, fully fulfilled. Uh, and then I think the, the sort of the secret sauce for a lot of people in, in the startup ecosystem is that they um, acted on it and they decided, okay, let's, let's, let's change it up. Let's, let's uh, either quit something that seems, you know, uh, potentially lucrative or really, um, or really safe and secure and, you know, maybe take a leap and, it happens in a lot of different ways. I mean, for, for me, my, my background was, uh, I started my career as a corporate lawyer um, doing private equity and M&A and general commercial law and, and that sort of thing. Um, but my, my sort of first uh, experiences, you know, as an independent person in, in the workforce was, was you know, uh, in journalism, actually. So I studied journalism before law school, which... I love, and I'm still like a hardcore news junkie, uh, which, you know, has its pros and its cons, especially over the last few years. Um, but after, um, after I graduated from law school, I, I, I did quite a bit of, of hard work as a lawyer and never quite felt like it was some, you know, something that I wanted to do for my whole life. You know, at first, I think a lot of people go into legal careers and a lot of sort of careers that have some some level of like traditional prestige to them. And frankly, when I was a student, I didn't really know what what it was, you know, like I, I, I was a competitive person. Uh, I, I did well in school. I wanted to sort of make my parents proud and all these, 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 these sort of factors like pushed me towards a career that in the end, I think uh, I don't regret by any means, uh, but there was definitely diminishing returns for me in my personal growth in terms of working towards where I wanted to be as a person and, and, and what, what kinds of things I wanted to learn. And, and that happened after about five or six years, uh, you know, uh, and, and ultimately that's, that's what started my, my transition over to, to working in venture capital. I, I spent some time at a, uh, a really amazing organization called First Capital Partners, which is one of Canada's sort of pioneering early stage fintech specific investors. Uh, in that context, I built up a startup called Covera, uh, which is in the insure tech and fintech space. Uh, eventually I sold that business in 2019 and uh, I was actually looking pretty actively for uh, a, a new project. I was working with potential uh, technical co-founders when I met uh, the team at Panache and, 
one thing led to another. And after a pretty long get to know you period, uh, I joined on as a, as a partner in Montreal, um, leading the investment team in Quebec and Atlantic Canada. And that, and that was pretty much exactly a year ago um, from, from now. So it's been a pretty busy uh, five years or so, and especially busy uh, 12 months or so. Yeah, I mean, getting into venture capital, it's not like, it's not one of those jobs where you go to university for, I'm going to be a venture capitalist. Like it, you kind of, you know, yeah, you come up around uh, through the back door in, in many ways. Um, yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, um, but it's fun. It's fun. It's fun. Um, I really, I really like that you have this. Um, so, you know, just to context, you know, we've chatted before. Uh, yeah. people, but I, I like that you have this, um, this internal beacon that that leads you towards you know like aligning your values with your career and I, I don't think that people do that enough um, and you know maybe sometimes you are a bit afraid to to switch careers um, oh I've come this far I went to degree my parents wanted me to do this or that but I think it's really important because you know down the road it's kind of what gives you joy each day and like 70% of people hate their jobs so talk a bit about why yeah. you think that's important and how did you how did you get there like what, what was the moment when you realized I need to be doing this um and uh yeah advice to people maybe on how they could do that more yeah you know um I I think of these I think of this in terms of having not so much having, let's say, a really clearly defined internal sense of purpose or mission or, 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 or I mean, I think that if you can have that clarity in, in your own life, then, then my hat's off to you. Like I, I have found that, you know, my priorities and the things that matter to me have like evolved a lot and, and you know, are, are difficult to really sort of put my finger on. But what I do think has been really helpful in my career and in, in life in general is I like to try and think about why I, I, I'm doing things, you know, and it's uh, a coping mechanism that I find is particularly helpful when you're having really tough times. So, you know, whether it's, you know, you're, you're drudging it out, like working like an animal for, you know, weeks on end because you have this big deliverable or, or I don't know, maybe things are, are, are tough at home or, or maybe, you know, you're a startup founder who has decided that you're going to cut your own salary uh, for a long period of time while you fundraise. Like all of these are, are pretty testing moments. And um, I, I remember when I was younger hearing uh, an athlete who I admire, I admire a lot named Peter Reed, who's, who's a triathlete. And, and uh, what he was explaining is that before he does his races, uh, which are really long format races. He, he races Ironman racing, which, or, or he's retired now, but those are races that are, are really sort of a massive physical feat to complete. And he would sort of reflect ahead of time on his purpose. What, what, why does he do this kind of racing? Why does he put himself through the suffering and the training and, and, and the, you know, the, the grit of, of actually, you know, winning a race and that sort of thing and, and have a clear, it was always important to him to have a really clear answer to the question. Why? Because when you're like 35 kilometers into the marathon at the end of an Ironman, like that's the wrong time 
to start brainstorming um, your intentions uh, and because you're not going to come up with good answers in that moment. So I always have thought of it as like, okay, if I have these, this clarity on like sort of why I want to try and do something, then I can rely on it when things are going wrong and when, and when I'm having bad days or when I'm having bad months, you know, um, if, if I'm in that position, I want to be able to rely on something that I've kind of decided internally, a, a deal I've made with myself, you know, in, in a prior time. And I think that's helped me a lot over the years. Yeah, I think, I mean, asking someone in their early 20s to, A, know what their values are and try to align that somehow at that age. I mean, you think you know, but you don't know. Like, it took me until I got into my 40s. And I, I think I figured it out, but maybe when I get into my 60s, I'm like, nah, you didn't have it figured out. I mean, who knows? Um, but um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's really important to understand, like you said, why you're doing it. Because I mean, in entrepreneurship, I see a lot of, I see a lot of folks trying to start companies because they say things like, oh, I want to, I want to be my own boss and I want to control my schedule. And, you know, but really, you know, they're sort of captivated with the fame right now. Like entrepreneurs, are like the new yeah. supermodels right now, <laughs> like they're really, um, you know, put on this pedestal. Um, and then I kind of giggle and say, well, you don't not, you'll, you, there's no schedule to control. It's like a 24 seven kind of thing. Yeah. So if that's what you look by control and now instead of having one boss, you have a board and <laughs> investors. Yeah. And, and it's a very lonely job. You know, you're, you know, uh, having a boss means that you have an uh, infinite supply of direction and, and you have a, an outlet where you get to either consciously or unconsciously um, deflect accountability away from yourself. And that's a benefit, <laughs> you know, like that, I mean, you may not like feel that that benefit is, is, is sufficient or, or, you know, you may not feel that, you know, that that's, that ought to be a benefit, but I am sure that it is, you know, because when you don't have that, you notice how lonely it can be, you know, as it's a founder. Taxing. It's like, it's a lot yeah. on, on the shoulders and, and on the mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I find that people often kind of have the wrong idea about what it means to be an entrepreneur. So, you know, like you said, please, everybody take a moment and think about why you're doing it. Because I think that that really contributes to most of the startup failures is that people have this idea of what they think it's going to be like. And then they get in there like, this is not, this yeah. I thought it was. Yeah, be. definitely. Definitely. And, and I think, I think we see it play out in the market as well. And like, there's this distinction between sort of, you know, even, even if you're a startup founder who's working a hundred hours a week on, on your startup like it doesn't fully define you right like you you have other things in your life you have family you have friends and you know you have to um so i do think that there's an important distinction between sort of having this like personal code and also your business which i think frankly businesses that have like a very strong um, sense of purpose and mission and that go through that really hard work to articulate those things end up be do doing better off you know and, and, and I think it, 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 it amplifies a lot of your strengths. I think it helps uh, in, in making tough decisions. Like if you have a really clear view on, you know, what your startup's values are, um, then 
even like operational decisions can become uh, simpler uh, and clearer, you know, and if there's buy-in throughout the whole organization, then you start to like coalesce around these values and it becomes a bit of a flywheel and becomes super helpful. And then all of a sudden it's helping you recruit and all of a sudden, you know, um, customers are reflecting those values back onto you. And all of a sudden your marketing copy is basically writing itself. Like, you know, I, I, I have to admit that when I, when I first sort of moved from, um, from like a legal mindset to a startup mindset, I was very skeptical of like those, what I would call like the soft side of business. Um, but having sort of lived through it and having seen how difficult it is um, to, to, to properly articulate those values, like, and then ultimately seeing how it helps companies in the market, uh, I'm super sold on it now. And like, since, since, since that time, like uh, I realized how, I guess, maybe snobbish my, my thinking was in terms of like, having to connect everything to something really like specifically rational or, you know, very kind of anchored in, in a, in a stat or in a data or that sort of thing. And I really kind of come to embrace the sort of emotional importance of all of this stuff, um, both like in my personal life and also, you know, in business and now at, at Panash. Amazing. So that's, so talking about then, those that soft business um, and having been on both sides, you've been both an entrepreneur, now you're an investor. Um, and if you could speak directly to any of the VCs that are listening, um, what advice would you give them um, from the other side, right? So because a lot of the VCs are, they come from a political science or economic backgrounds or legal backgrounds or finance backgrounds and not necessarily having that entrepreneurial um, uh, side of things. What, what advice would you give them? Mm. Well, I mean, um, you know, I should, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a person with a year in the, in the craft, right? So there's obviously limits to my wisdom because I don't have a whole lot of, of uh, I, there are, I guess what I'm saying is that there are people in this industry who have, much, much more practical and learned and lived experience uh, as a venture capitalist than I do, right? But to answer your question, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I do believe that you could kind of summarize it as founder empathy, right? And, and empathy is, in my mind, just another way of saying, um, put yourself in, in, in people's shoes. And I think, like, I think the best piece of advice from the other side of the table would be like treat founders with respect, you know, and, and, and recognize that no matter what you think about their business model, um, their strategy, their team, their slide deck, their website, whatever, uh, no matter what uh, you think, and no matter how harebrained the idea is or how disorganized or how bad, but like, None of that matters because at the end of the day, you're talking to somebody who is putting their blood, sweat, and tears into something, and you owe them the respect of showing up on time to your meetings, of you know providing adequate time for them to tell their stories, you know, doing some legwork ahead of you know your your meetings, so that you at least don't come in completely uninitiated. 
following up after the meeting, not ghosting founders, going two or three meetings deep and then never speaking to them again. I mean, I think it's all etiquette. And I think that the career of venture capital is one that like from a structural perspective can lead to a lot of bad behavior. Like one, you have, um, it, it's a busy job, you know, like I, I, I work a lot, you know, and, and I think, um, if I compare it to like my life as a lawyer, it's, it's, it's add or more, you know, in terms of like the number of hours like I put in a week, I'm basically always connected. And, you know, we do take vacation and we have like uh, time to, 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 to unplug, but um, none of that is, is, is really fundamentally comparable to like somebody who, like what we were talking about earlier has put their blood, sweat and tears in and also has, um, you know, really, I suppose just committed, you know, and, and to me, I think that that's a really important thing. And, but structurally, because the job is so busy, it does create these kind of like bad behaviors, like slow responsiveness on responding to emails and not being organized and not, not preparing ahead of time and that sort of thing. So that, that's like one thing, but I also think like an important um, thing to remember is from a structural perspective, there's like a huge power imbalance um, with founders and VCs and, and VCs are, are um, I think often, they often forget that basically they're only really important because they're a gatekeeper to capital that oftentimes isn't their own capital, or at least most of it isn't their own capital. Um, and, that, and that like can tend to inflate self-importance you know, and, and it can, it can do that consciously and unconsciously, I, I think. Um, but at the end of the day, it's like, it's not your money. And, uh, you know, half of the reason why everyone wants to talk to you and everyone wants to, you know, to get, you know, to pick your brain and all this kind of stuff is because, you know, you control something that's incredibly important um, for them. And it's important to remember that, I think. And, I, you know, and if we kind of reflect back on like, all of the, the Me Too movement and, and the, the stuff that happened in Silicon Valley, and I'm sure it happened pretty much everywhere. When you think about the power dynamics between founders and VCs and how much like traditionally, at least I think, I do think it's changing a little bit, but how much like recreational drinking is involved and so on. I think it's a, it's a, it's a recipe for all sorts of bad behaviors. Uh, and, you know, we have to, we have to remember that, you know, and, and not, and, and, and I think remembering that takes work too. You have to remind yourself of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, power corrupts, right? So, I mean, we know that, and it doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It's just, that's, that's, um, that's part of being human. Um, so yeah, being conscious of that is, is really important. So let's shift gears a little bit to panache. So talk to me about um, like, what's the process of, of getting in front of, folks at Panache and what do you like to fund? Yeah. Um, so the, so Panache is a pre-seed and seed stage venture capital fund, uh, mostly in Canada with about 20% of the funds getting deployed outside of, of Canada, mostly in the States in those cases. Um, we are at the, we actually just raised our second fund uh, mm-hmm. and we'll be writing checks uh, for the next, hopefully for forever, but, uh, our next fund is is just starting now, and uh, check sizes will be 
in the range of between 250,000 Canadian dollars up to a million on first check and then up to one, one or more, let's say, uh, on, on second check. Um, so we are very uh, keen to speak with early stage founders. We are, I would say, more biased towards pre-seed than we are seed. Uh, and we are agnostic of sectors. So we will look at pretty much everything. Um, the standard sort of VC economics apply, of course. And so we are looking for very ambitious ideas and very ambitious founders that can scale exponentially uh, because as many of your readers uh, or listeners, I should say, will, will know, um, the, the concept of venture capital is to select companies that will have a disproportionately huge sort of impact on the, on the portfolio construction. And so we are definitely looking for um, ideas that can be brought outside of a local context and even outside of a national context. And that's a pretty critical part of like the top of funnel um, filtering that happens at Panache, but also I think at most venture capital funds. Um, in terms of getting in touch with us, you know, uh, we're, I think, very accessible. And I, and, you know, this is an interesting thing that I didn't quite understand as well until I became uh, a VC. Usually, like when you think about the fundraising process, it's, it's, it's framed up in the sense of that there's uh, companies looking for funding, right? That's the traditional thing. Okay, I need to go and fund this company. Um, but equally important and equally sort of critical to the success of those organizations, them being venture capitalists, is the ability to find good companies. Um, I did not realize that, you know, before I, I was sort of, when I was like a lawyer, I didn't really realize that sourcing deals was like as much of a challenge, if not a greater challenge for venture capital funds than, uh, than sourcing funding is for, for, for startups. Um, and so, you know, if you're a founder listening to this, I would encourage you to, to just try your best to reach out to pretty much any venture capitalist that you want to speak with. You know, and it doesn't have to be, you know, uh, people have different opinions on this, as in some, some will say, you know, never, never cold call a VC um, and always use a warm intro. I absolutely think that warm intros are a, a very effective way of, of meeting with a venture fund. But I do think that if you are a founder, um, you need to be good at cold calling and, being good at cold calling is a skill that is applicable in fundraising, in sales, in, in many other things, in, in marketing, in many other things, right? So um, I think getting enough sort of warm intros, uh, you know, will, will definitely get you in front of Panache. We're a national fund. So we have a partner in Montreal, Toronto, Calgary, and Vancouver. Um, we're, we're traveling all the time. We're very, very accessible. And I would encourage anyone um, to, to either reach out to us directly or to find a way, you know, could be through one of our portfolio companies, which we have many founders, um, or through people in the, in the ecosystem, like yourself, Bobby. Um, it's not hard to get in front of VCs, in my, in my opinion. Uh, it just takes a different approach for, and, and honestly, it takes, it takes a thoughtful approach with respect to who you're, you know, actually, let's talk about this for a second. So, like, founders will often have this huge list of, of funds that they want to work through. And like, of course, every single founder in the world wants to go and talk to Adresen and 
you know, all the sort of stars of Silicon Valley. And, uh, but I, I sometimes feel like there isn't enough thought applied to making sure that there's good like investor company fit before yeah. the fundraising process starts. Yeah. And, you know, there's basics there. Like the basics is, okay, did they invest in, in, in my stage? Uh, uh, do they have a company in their portfolio, which is an obvious conflict? Um, there's like some basics that, that go along with that. And then there's also like substantive and more sort of detail oriented fit criteria, which would be like, okay, this particular person at that particular fund built something cool that I want to like know about or learn about. Um, or, you know, or this particular fund has a very targeted investment thesis like that is right in our swim lane. Uh, I think there's a lot to be said about prioritizing that list and not necessarily just going for the biggest logos and trying to find that, that right fit uh, because you don't want too many investors on your cap table that are just going to bring you only cash and without any sort of non-monetary value creation like over the course, you know, Mm-hmm. It, it becomes very expensive equity to sell if the only thing you're getting out of it is, is cash. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I just can't imagine anybody who could fundraise without any cold calling. I, I mean, at least not at the seed stage. I mean, it's great if you have warm, warm intros, but I mean, that means that you know a lot of people and generally when you're first starting out, you just don't have that. So yeah, you got to be willing to do cold stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, and cold calling is like there's there's different kinds, right? Like if somebody cold calls me through a LinkedIn direct message, and there's absolutely no context, and they know nothing about us, and you know it's literally just like, hey, here's this investment opportunity. Um, I, I will probably not really do, pay that much by. Um, but all VCs are you know human, and they're therefore they have egos and. You know, if you really want to be effective at getting in front of somebody, you know, poke around on their social media, poke around on their blog, see what they've written, see what they built, reach out with some sort of context. Hey, I thought it was really cool what you wrote about that. Or, hey, this was an interesting piece that I read that contradicts what you said here. Or, wow, you did something. Like, people love to talk about their own experiences and their own perspectives. And you can use that to your advantage, too. Yeah, you got to make some kind of connection. Show me why there's, uh, there's something. Um, yeah, you got to do exactly. your homework. You got to do your homework. Um, so the question that I ask all VCs, um, and if you already covered half of it, um, that's okay. But you know, we want the inside scoop uh, for entrepreneurs. So what are what are VCs really looking for, and what do like what gets startups rejected usually? Like, what are they really doing wrong? Hmm. Yeah, so some of it we've covered already. But I mean, I think from like a, a high level perspective, I would say uh, a really sort of compelling solution for a very large problem um, that can be applied internationally. Um, I would say that it's also very important that you take into consideration not only the problem and the solution, but the, the rate at which that solution can be deployed, right? So if, if you know, if there's a, a very important problem in a specific industry that requires a very complicated and highly regulated piece of software to solve with lots of customization and lots of 
sort of post implementation maintenance and all that kind of stuff that that is going to grow that that business will grow significantly uh, slower than a business that can be deployed in a much shorter period of time um, and you know sometimes the the value of the contracts associated to those kinds of longer term you know, sort of whale hunting uh, expeditions don't match um, the effort that's put in and the long cycle cell cycles associated to it. So it's like, it's not enough that there's a massive pain point and then that you've come up with an elegant solution to it. There has to be uh, something that enables the technology to, to grow exponentially and to grow and to follow that curve for years to come. Um, now, once you have those two components, I think the, 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 the sort of the last part of the triad is, you know, is this team uh, in front of me uh, a team that I think can execute on this vision, right? And so are they dealing with a big enough problem? Um, can the solution scale? And does this team have the, either the ability or the history or the skills or the network or, or some sort of secret sauce that will enable them to be the ones who actually execute uh, effectively? I think the... If you have those three things, particularly when you're talking to a pre-seed and seed stage, you know, investor, um, you are probably in like the 85th percentile. Um, and I mean, I'd say like the, the common problems or the common mistakes that are, I mean, there's two, there are so many, but I, but I, I guess <laughs> the, the way to answer well, look, I mean, I guess the answer is sort sure of enough. like the opposite of, of, of the first part of the question, right? So um, not a significant pain point, uh, not an elegant solution, not something that can scale outside of its local habitat, you know, and a team that perhaps isn't best suited to do it, right? And I think that, like, there's so many permutations of that. Yeah. Um, it's, hard, it's hard to like, narrow it down into a specific thing. But I think all in all, um, if I were to have to choose one reason why um, why companies are not sort of successful at raising venture capital, I would say that they're not thinking big enough um, and that they haven't, they, they've allowed sort of their own skepticism um, limit the ambition that they're applying to the business model because they are in some way trying to make it more fundable by making it more realistic. And I think that that's something that has happened in Canada a lot, in part because of how risk adverse uh, and, uh, you know, our, our venture capital scene is uh, relative to in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also believe that in, in, in Canada, there's, there's sort of a generalized um, lack of very early stage funds that are willing to lead deals. Um, you know, there's a lot of, of funds that are, are not empowered by their limited partners to take that shot. Uh, and that, you know, through their own sort of, uh, I guess, either their own comfort level or through what the, the deal that they've cut with their investors are only able to sort of follow on. And, you know, that's, that's a problem. You know, it's, it's, it's a separate set of questions, but it is something that I think, uh, perhaps created behaviors among founders because you know in a as, as a canadian you, you're going to adapt to the to the environment and, mm -hmm. and sometimes that might mean tempering your ambition so then your story seems less moonshotty 
And, and I think that's really unfortunate uh, because it's a clear sort of mismatch between the objective of venture capital and of most startup founders in reaction to like sort of what our local scene has become over a long period of time. I do think it's changing, but uh, you know, it, certainly when I was a founder, I felt that way. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you for that insight. So I got a new question that I'm testing out on people. Um, mm -hmm. What is your favorite movie or show and favorite book and why? Oh, I have to answer all of those. Uh, or not, you know, not everybody watches or not. these books. <laughs> which one. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound like, uh, like I'm just piling on, but I, I don't know if it's my favorite book, but I loved uh, Dune, uh, the book. Um, I, I read it a little while ago. And, uh, and then when the movie was, was sort of, they were finally making like the, the sort of authoritative version of the, of, of the book as a movie, uh, I reread the first book again. And I just, I just love it. Anyone who's a, a fan of, I, I'm not a sci-fi fan in general. In fact, I read that book because I was like, I need to read something that's sci-fi because everyone seems to tell me how amazing it is. And, and, you know, uh, I just wanted to experience it. So I tried a few like Asimov books, which I, I liked, but I loved Dune. I thought Dune was like so deep and complicated in terms of all the, like the lore and the political aspect of it. It's, just, it's a lovely book and I really recommend it to anyone. Um, and I have bought several people copies of that book actually. Uh, in terms of, of TV shows, I'm not a huge TV fan, but I am an absolute fanatic of for The Wire, um, which was uh, cops and robbers, sort of drug dealer, uh, urban sprawl kind of uh, show. I, I don't know what year it was. It was, it was. I think there's five seasons and I've watched the whole thing multiple times. And the, I think it's just like an amazing a piece of work that really highlights like how one sort of problem can manifest in so many different places. And, and like, I think if like, I described it as a cops and robbers show, but really it's sort of like about like how people get bogged down by bureaucracy and by, um, by red tape in a way. And like, it's true for the cops. It's true for the teachers. It's true for the journalists. It's true for the drug dealers. It's true for everyone in that show. And, and I thought that was like a really insightful way of, of, of looking at a problem and looking at, you know, uh, Western values over a long period of time. Um, really amazing show that I would recommend to anyone. Nice. The Wire. Uh, movies, clear, I'm building my list. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. So if, if I, I, what I usually say to someone is, if you're skeptical about The Wire, I promise I will watch whatever your pick is. So if you... If you have a pick that you that you think like Scott's gonna love it or any like, everyone should love this, I promise I will watch it if you give the wire a shot. That's like my deal I always make with people because I, I really am convinced you'll you'll like it. <laughs> amazing, amazing. But then we gotta talk about it, right? Because what's the point of yeah, exactly. that if we cannot commiserate um over it? 100%. I'm a huge fan of crime shows, not because I like crime so much, but because I love human behavior and they really capture like a real gamut of of you know human behaviors in those shows so. but you know what's like what sucks about like these sort of long shows that well like like to go through several seasons like what i've always found breaks my immersion 
is when you have a like a character in like season one who radically changes like over the course of of the of the series right so like a good example would be the show Dexter who that, that which I also kind of liked but stopped liking after a period of time because of this problem right? it's like there are characters in like season one who are like sort of like the office bad guy and then by like season three they're like the hero and then by season four they're sort of not relevant anymore and you basically never see them and I, I find that the what really impressed me about the wire is like the character who you meet in in the first scene of season one he, he stays exactly the same for all five seasons you just get to know him better and you mm -hmm. get to understand all the characters you get to understand them very deeply but they're exactly who they are and they don't change just like in real life you know yeah. and you don't have these radical swings where someone one minute is like a total sociopath and the next minute they're like the hero of the show it's like that's not real life like what's real life is that you you get to know people over a long period of time, over years, and you understand how they think, and then you, you, you pick up on like the nuances of how they how they talk and how they how they solve problems. I, I just really thought that The Wire gave me that perspective into people that I didn't know, and I thought that was really fascinating. Okay, uh, yeah, authenticity, I guess, throughout is is key there. Amazing. Okay. Well, that's a little inside the head of Scott, everybody. Um, so yeah, so that's, uh, that pretty much wraps things up. So thank you so much, uh, Scott, for joining us. And for those who want to get in touch with Scott or Panache, hit up their website, hit him up on LinkedIn. Thank you again, Scott, for joining us. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, if, if there's founders out there that want to connect, you know, you can just email me directly at scott at panache.bc. Um, and, uh, if you mentioned that you, 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 you got my email from, from Bobby's podcast, I promise I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll definitely respond as quickly as I can. Yay. And then Bobby gets a drink. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much, uh, to our loyal listeners. Your time is always appreciated. If you are watching us on YouTube and you like what you see, there's a lot more where that came from. So hit the subscribe button like the episode and share your thoughts in the comments. And you can also follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So ciao for now. Thank you for listening. We hope you had fun and gained valuable insights. If you like what you see in here, hit the subscribe button, leave us a comment, share the podcast, and follow us on social media.